0: going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, and this is one of my favorite passages, and the Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, in context before we stand, I just want to share with you that though Paul doesn't have the largest volume of writing in the New Testament that is given, that honor is given to Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts, but Paul is certainly the most prolific author in that his writings... Changed the Western world. His pastoral epistles established the order that we follow in services in churches around the world. This tiny little rabbi who gave up everything and lived a life of pain. He was scheduled to be the chief Pharisee in all of Israel. It's a lucrative position, one with great notoriety. He spoke multiple languages, had the equivalent of what would be a law degree a doctorate in theology. And when when lawyers read and professors of law read Romans, they realize the giftedness and the mind of the Apostle Paul in the world of legal understanding. We knew that Paul had to have been married because the requirement of the sect that he was a part of in Judaism but we also know that, as he says in Corinthians, that adultery is a grounds for divorce, but so is the abandonment of marriage by a non-believing spouse. And, and the idea for us is that his wife just left him. You're crazy. You're giving up all of this so that we can travel to places we've never been to be treated like prisoners and kicked through the streets like a soccer ball. Everywhere Paul went, there was either a, a riot or a revival He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was at perils on land, at perils at sea, perils by robbers. His life was marked by pain. And you think, a man gave up all that, God owes him something, and all he got in return was he never called ahead to see what the hotels were like, in each city he called to see what the prisons were like, because that's where he spent the majority of his time. He was left for dead, they beat him so bad. He experienced blindness and rejection from the church itself, the the passage where Paul speaks of the thorn in his side, and theologians have speculated that it was some sort of a physical ailment that plagued Paul, and he asked God to remove it, and God didn't. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Uh, An elderly mentor of mine, a 90-year-old childless widow... shared with me an insight into that thorn in Paul's side that I've never heard any theologian describe, and I thought it was brilliant. And she had a photographic memory and had a PhD. I think she was the first woman to get a doctorate from University of Pennsylvania. And when I knew her, she was in her late 90s. She's the one that her great-grandmother was an eyewitness at the Gettysburg Address. And her great-grandmother lived to be almost 100 Alice knew her great-grandmother almost to the age of 16. Her great-grandmother was 16 years old at the Gettysburg Address. She gave me the kepi, the Union hat of her great-grandfather that he wore at the Battle of the Wilderness. So I'm one person removed from an eyewitness of the Gettysburg Address. That's how young this nation is. That message conceived in liberty and dedicated the proposition that all men are created equal will have a new birth of freedom and not perish from the face of the earth. How true Lincoln's words were and how needed they are now. And she had such a neat photographic memory, but she was, she was bound by her physical ailments in a two-story house. She could no longer access the second floor where her library was. And I would spend late evening sitting with her in her study, which was also her bedroom. It was the the den, but she would just pull out the couch and and sleep there and then and that's her world. She was bound to a wheelchair. And as we'd be talking theologically, she'd say, Rob, go upstairs to my library, third shelf of the first book shelf. Sixth book from the left. Chapter six. Paragraph four bring that down. <laughs> I'd go up, I'd get it. She, it, it. she could quote it verbatim. She had a photographic memory. I, I used to think, that, that's, just, that's just not fair. <laughs> and she said to me one day, she said, Rob, I, th- I, I don't be, mean to be presumptuous. She just said, I don't think theologians understand the thorn in Paul's side. It wasn't physical. She said, He struggled with the fact that none of the other apostles ever recognized him as an apostle. When Judas had betrayed Jesus, they had to replace that seat of an apostle, and they drew straws. When they were told to go and wait for the the Lord's return, they decided to take matters into their own hands, and they drew straws and picked some guy that nobody remembers and yet, it was Paul who was always supposed to be that. And there would be nobody in that upper room who would say, you know who the next apostle is supposed to be? That guy over there killing Christians. God had work to do in Paul's life before he would appoint him an apostle. And part of being an apostle means you had to have eyewitness in presence of the Lord. And he, he did, as the scripture details. And they never recognized him as an apostle. And they, they berated him and considered him unacceptable. It would be like an Antifa member coming to Christ and then all of a sudden being the pastor of the church you're like yeah no yeah (laughs) but that's paul's life and i and i thought her insights were brilliant and i was touched by it and he wrote the book of romans he wrote the book of corinthians and in corinthians as he's writing to this church this church was a train wreck He wrote two letters. Epistle means letter. He wrote two letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And he's dealing with a church that has been established in one of the most decadent, pagan cities on the face of the earth. Every single family had been affected by sexual promiscuity. Every woman in that city would have to serve in the temple of Aphrodite once or twice a year to bring revenue to the temple where they would have to apply the trade of prostitution, whether a a wife or a daughter at a certain age, and come in in this seaport village uh, to bring revenue to the temple. All of them had experienced infidelity and promiscuity. And now Paul's coming in to talk about the transformation of Christ and And he's speaking to the church that has got major issues. And this is where we get all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And they had gifts, but they were also screwed up. They had a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. It's like... (laughs) Their family tree didn't branch. (laughs) Are you my uncle daddy? (laughs) Seriously, the church put the fun in dysfunction. It was a train wreck. And Paul's speaking to them and he's addressing it and he goes into this, this description of a very profound word that it's going to minister to all of us, and one that's so desperate right now, so needed. It's called reconcile or reconciliation. I was moved by it. That word changed my life. to be reconciled. We'll look at it. Let's begin with that which will bring us the greatest understanding, which is the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. We stand for the word of the Lord. We sit for the word of the teacher. One we honor, the other we tolerate. Verse 17, Paul writing, therefore, by the way, when that word is there, Then you say, what is it there for? (laughs) Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, meaning counting you guilty, not imputing, their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, Lord, we ask your blessing on the Study of your word which brings life. Cause us to come alive to your word as your word is already living and breathing. Lord, minister to every heart the power of reconciliation. We thank you, Lord, for the timeliness as all of our hearts are broken in so many different ways and all of us have been hurt and all of us have hurt. And today it needs to be resolved. And so Holy Spirit, would you do what no man can do? Would you work that by your spirit, great physician, bring healing? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, have a seat. Relax. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Man, that's odd. We go through tribulations, and that gives us perseverance, that perseverance gives us hope. That's why I'm an eternal optimist. We didn't lose the election, we just figured out another way on how not to win. (laughs) For all those who say, "I, I, I... they cheated, and I'm giving up. And we, they mailed out 22 million ballots. People all over the country received them. And, and by election night, it was over. And, and 78% of the countries in Europe will not do vote-by-mail because it's the most corrupt system. And they want to implement that nationwide. And, and I looked at that, and people say, I'm, I've given up. I'm not doing it anymore. Okay, stop. Just give that a rest. The most corrupt state in the union was Florida, Dade County, Gore versus Bush, you remember that? Hanging chads, dimpled ballots. One man, Governor DeSantis, turned it around. Dade County, they got their whole election results in, election night. There's hope for California. You look at Arkansas with Governor Huckabee, 126 in the state legislature, upper and lower house, and when he ran for Senate, he lost, and there hadn't been a Republican lieutenant governor elected in Arkansas since before the Civil War. Or I should say Reconstruction. And the governor of the state that year got elected to the presidency, Clinton. They had a hold on the entire state of Arkansas, all the state troopers. It was corrupt. And he gets the presidency. So the lieutenant governor becomes governor. I think it was Guy Tucker. And so they had a special election for lieutenant governor. And Mike, as a minister, had run for Senate and lost. And they said, well, will you run for lieutenant governor? He was exhausted. And he said, look, and he goes, all right. He prayed about it, and he and his wife had a peace, and he ended up winning. And they were so shocked that this corrupt government locked the lieutenant governor's door from the inside and wouldn't let him occupy the office for which he was duly elected. It took seven court orders, if not more, to get him just to be able to go into the office he was elected to be a part of. And of the 126 plus in the legislature, I think 14 were Republicans, either upper or lower house in total. They, They made California look really conservative. And then, as what typically happens in Arkansas, the governor, Guy Tucker, got a, a, sent to jail. <laughs> and so they had the lieutenant governor take the position. He ended up winning re-election, and he turned out. And by the time he left, the entire legislature flipped and its Almost completely conservative at the state level, and every federal office is held by a Republican because one man made a difference, and he stood. I, 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 listen, if you're tired of the shenanigans, and, and you've given up, would you please do me a favor and move? <laughs> but before you move, do me another favor. Look your children in the eye and your grandchildren and say, you know what? I have been afforded by my ancestors 245 years of unprecedented freedom, but I am going to give up for your generation because it's just too difficult. One in nine Americans fought the Revolutionary War to secure the liberty. And we're upset because 22 million ballots went out, and before election night was over, they'd already called the race. Fight harder. Make a difference. Do more. And if you're tired and you don't want to do it, then go to a state... That's not here because we are assembling Gideon's army. And that's all that's going to remain in California. But that's okay because just one man and God constitutes a majority. But this idea of perseverance and character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Paul says again in Romans 5, he says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We weren't a catch. We were at war with him. The people who spat upon him and beat him and crucified him and mocked him, he died for them. He died, and the last word on his mouth was in Greek, tetelestai. In English, it's three words, it is finished. He also said of his last seven phrases, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was the sinless lamb of God who was slain because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And blood must be shed for the remission, for the forgiveness, for the cleansing of sin. I can't die for you and you can't die for me because systemically all of us have sin in our life. I'm on death row for my own sins. You're on death row for your own sins. You can't die for me. you got your own penalty to deal with. And I can't die for you because i got my own penalty to deal with. But Christ who was without sin, tempted in all ways, yet was without sin, he died. And his death on the cross and the blood he shed was sufficient for all the world's sins, but only efficient for those who would receive that gift. And it's afforded to all mankind. And he died for you when you hated him, just like he died for me when I despised him and mocked him and made fun of him. That's love. Verse 9, Romans 5, much more than having now been justified by his blood, and I'll cover that we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received reconciliation. I love this idea of justified by his blood. I used this term when I was asked to go and travel from here to Claremont with a car full of my Mormon friends, and these LDS were very high-ranking, still are. One is now in the Quorum of the Seventy. If you don't understand the hierarchy, that's very big. From the Quorum of the Seventy, they picked the Twelve Apostles and then the, the President. And as a Mormon, to meet one of the Apostles is a lifelong dream come true for many LDS. They invited me to go to the dedication of the Mormon school of religion at Claremont. And I'm in a car with Mormons for uh, two hours. And there was traffic, so it was three and a half hours. (laughs) The low man on the totem pole, bless his heart, who is now a very dear friend, uh, he felt as though it was his duty to proselytize me, where the other guys in the car were like, yeah, man, give it a rest. This this isn't his first rodeo. (laughs) And I, I remember the drive. And we get there, and we were late. And the place was packed, and I was the only one without a tie, I did have a blazer, thank God. And they waved us in the minute we got there and brought us to the front. And there were seats waiting for us, and I sat down. And the man who spoke was one of the apostles, his name was Elder Oaks, and I'd never met him before, he was in his 90s, and he was giving a message on religious liberty, which I thought was fascinating. And he did a good job. And at the end of it, everyone rushed to the stage to meet one of the living apostles. And Matt Ball came out and said, um, the apostle's not greeting anyone today. You could hear an audible groan. And Matt Ball, who's in charge of all the Western states for LDS, he pointed in my direction, I was next to Dave um, Benson and the other guys, and he points to Dave and he does this. I go, Dave, Matt wants you up there. He goes, Rob, he's not pointing to me, he's pointing to you. I go, what? And I point like that and he goes So I walk up without a tie and all these LDS are looking at me like, who is this? And where's this tie? It was like Moses parting the Red Sea, and I walk up on the stage, and he brings me over and he says, Rob McCoy, I want you to meet uh, Elder Oaks. I said, hello, sir. It's an honor to meet you. He says, no, it's my honor to meet you. And I said, well, I, I candidly, sir, before today, I didn't know who you were, He said, but I really enjoyed what you had to share. He said, well, I know who you are. As a matter of fact, I just finished testifying to the Mexican Senate because their constitution says that a member of the clergy isn't allowed to hold office in Mexico. And I used you as a case and as an example as they asked me to testify. And he said, and I'm just very honored to meet you. And I was taken aback. I said, well, it's a joy to meet you. And we laughed and had a couple of exchanging jokes and giggled. But One of my favorites was he said, you know, I used you as an example. I said, dude, you are really desperate. (laughs) He laughed. I left after greeting him. It was pleasantries. Came down, and it was as though something magical had happened to me. Everyone was looking at me. I get in the car for the two-and-a-half-hour drive back, and nobody's talking, including the one who proselytized for three hours. They're silent. And I'm like, guys, what?" What is going on? Why, just, what's happening? And they go, you've met one of the apostles. I go, yeah. I'm the same guy you drove in with, same guy you're driving back with. And then we began to talk, and I said, you know, fellas, I love what you do and the, the idea that you, you try to bring ecumenical gatherings, but you end up with Baha'i faith and, and the Unitarian Church and some liberal synagogues and a couple of mosques with some imams, you get some liberal you know, Protestant denominations, uh, a Catholic priest now and then, but you never get the evangelicals into your ecumenical gathering. He goes, I know, we've tried so hard. I go, I, I know you have. I said, I'll tell you a secret on how to do that. And they're like, oh. I said, there's two words. One is called sanctification. And they go, yeah, we've heard of that. I go, Mormons have sanctification down. The, the Protestant Church doesn't get sanctification, but you guys do. Sanctification means set apart. You have been assigned to the Master, you're the masters. It's, it's like the, the pots and pans in the temple, the, the holy vessels in the temple, they were just beat up old pots and pans, but they belonged to God, and they were God's beat-up pots and pans. And I said, to give you an example of what it means to be sanctified is, I have a cup. It's my favorite coffee mug. Tim and Darlene Maddox were here in the first service. I got it when I was in Cyprus, which is where there's missionaries. It's a Starbucks Cyprus coffee mug. I just love the feel of it, the handle, the weight of it. It's my favorite coffee mug. I like that it's, you know, wide. And I would always make a latte or something, and, and one day I'm drinking out of my favorite vessel, and this cup is sanctified to me. Nobody's allowed to use my Cyprus Starbucks coffee mug. I, I notice outside the tomato plant I'm, I planted is wilting, so I go up and I put the coffee cup up on the cinder block wall and I tie up the tomato plant and I'm distracted by a phone or someone saying they need me and I go in the house and I forget about my coffee mug, I get caught up in the busyness of the day and the plant grows vociferously in the summer heat, sunshine and it hides and camouflages and conceals my favorite vessel. <laughs> I accuse everyone of having stolen it And then as the fall comes and the plant withers, I walk out and there I see the master's vessel. And I grab it and the, the milk is molded. It's still my favorite vessel, but it needs to be cleansed. And you could hear the Mormons go, "Mmm, yes. And I said, you guys are really good at that. You don't drink, smoke, or chew or hang around with those who do. In any community, you're the most moral people there are. I said, but you don't understand justification, which we just read in Romans 5. Justification, powerful. I said, justification is a word that Mormons really need to grasp. It means just as if I'd never sinned. That when Christ imputes his righteousness and in your sin he forgives you and cleanses you of all unrighteousness, He's forgiven your sins, past, present, and future. And when the father looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in his son's righteousness. It's it's amazing. No other religion in the world does this. And I said, you guys don't get that. And they go, no, I think we do. I go, no, you don't. I said, I'll give you an example why. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Preach it, Gray. I said, you have a bishop in this Conejo area. And there's lots of bishops, so I wasn't throwing anyone under, under the bus. But I said... This bishop came to me and said, uh, Rob, can I borrow $1,500? Can I borrow $1,500 because uh, I, and I'll pay you back. I said, Bishop, I don't loan money, I give it. You come by, there'll be a check waiting for you. He came by, he was crying, gave it to me, called later, and he said, I hate to do this, but can I ha- borrow another $1,500? I said, I don't loan it, I give it, come by, and the check will be waiting for you. Crying again. And I turned to these guys, and I said, do you know, It didn't shock me. He paid back every penny. And he was grateful and it was timely. Exactly what I expect from a sanctified Mormon. But I said, Here's where you don't get justification, fellas. You ready? And they go, Yeah. I go, I'm going to describe justification to you by asking you one question. And they were quiet in the car because I had been with an apostle. I said, fellas, why didn't he call you? Because he'd be judged. Because your salvation is by works. He knew he could come to me because I am a three-dimensional loser. (laughs) God takes the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. I'm not up here because I'm better than you. I'm up here because I'm the worst. And God uses me so all of you can say, if Rob McCoy can be reconciled, sanctified, and justified, anyone can. Amen. And I said, your bishop understood that. I said, once you guys get that down, you'll be an unstoppable force. And there's only one way to understand justification, and that's reconciliation by Christ. To realize what he's done for you, that it's sufficient, and it doesn't require your works. And they pondered that, and it touched them. We had a great conversation following that. That's what Paul's saying here about the power of justification. just if I'd never sinned. And the way that works is Christ died in our place. While we were yet sinners, he paid the penalty. The price. Blood must be shed for the remission of sins. He didn't do it because we're righteous or we're good. While we were sinners, while we were at enmity, while we were at war with God, I cursed God. I mocked him. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. And even in the midst of my debauchery and and my callous words and carelessness, he loved me. He died for me while I was a sinner. He reconciled me to himself. And that's what Paul says. We're a new creature in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And he says he, he... he doesn't impute our trespasses to us. Instead, he places his righteousness on us. This idea of reconciliation. In Webster's Dictionary, a real simple definition, to restore to friendship or harmony, reconcile the factions, settle or resolve, reconcile differences, to cause or submit to accept something unpleasant, reconcile to a hardship. I, I, I can't process how Pastor Dave and Lynette are reconciling the hardship of the loss of their little boy. But upon the promises of God, which are yes and amen and they're good, they trust him. And the longer I live, the more I see God is faithful every step of the way. Time will always prove that true. That's the world's definition of reconciliation, quickly, scripturally speaking. Reconciliation, the meaning common to this word group is change or exchange. Reconciliation involves a change in the relationship between God and man or man and man. It assumes that there has been a breakdown in the relationship, but now there has been a change from a state of enmity, fighting, and fragmentation, broken, to one of harmony and fellowship. And as we read in Romans 5, Paul said that before reconciliation, we were powerless, ungodly, sinners and enemies. We were under God's wrath, Because of change or reconciliation, we became new creatures. As it says in Corinthians 5, anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Reconciliation has to do with the relationship between God and and man, or man and man. God reconciles the world to himself, we read that. Reconciliation takes place through the cross of Christ or the death of Christ. He had to pay the penalty so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Sin separated us from God. Jesus paid the price. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. God reconciles us to himself through the death of his son. Thus we are no longer enemies, ungodly sinners, or powerless. Instead, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. It is a change in the total state of our lives, which he did for me and many of you. Reconciliation is the objective work of God through Christ, but it is also the subjective work relationship that god commands us to be reconciled it's it's work we need to do we need to be reconciled thus it is christ through the cross who has made reconciliation possible for god made him to be sin for us reconciliation is also related to justification as i covered god has reconciled the world not counting people's sins against them just as if i'd never sinned cast it as far as east is from the west to be remembered no more god chooses to forget he chooses not to remember It is related to justification in Romans 5. We've been justified by faith, by his blood. Reconciliation is also subjective in that the sinner is spoken of as being reconciled. It is a relationship that comes between man and wife as well as Jew and Gentile. That's ethnicities. You you can replace that. Critical race theory seeks to exploit historical wounds in our nation to pit us against one another based on an immutable trait by the content of melanin. That is not Christian. Any church that promotes that is not biblical. Christ has come to reconcile us. We are one in Christ. There's the human race. And you call that racist? Get another Bible and find another God because the God of all creation is not the one that you follow. If a person is about to offer a gift at the altar and remembers that he has something against his brother, Matthew 5, he should leave his gift and be reconciled first to his brother and then come and offer his gift. Reconciliation is something done by the one who offers it. It is not just something that happens to the estranged people. It is the cross of Christ that reconciles both Jew and Gentile. They are brought near by the blood of Christ. This nation needs reconciliation and the world is trying to divide us as is the government. Medical apartheid, racial division, Income inequality. they do anything they can to pit us against one another and hate. God has come to reconcile us. Because of this, Jew and Gentile have access to the Father by one spirit. They are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God and members of the same household. Gentile and Jewish believers are reconciled to God. And the middle wall of partition is broken down. Both are brought near by the blood of Christ. And finally, This message of reconciliation or salvation that has come from God through Christ has been passed on to us. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.18. We just read that. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's our call today. You're all ministers of reconciliation. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. The ultimate aim is that we are not only justified, just as if I'd never sinned, but that we might become the righteousness of God. The whole message of reconciliation is centered around the love of God and the death of Christ. Paul reminds us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I'll wrap it up with a couple of examples. Everyone in this room has been hurt Everyone in this room has hurt. For many of you, the one who's wounded you lives in your head rent free. Those images, can't let them go. God cast our sin as far as eastern from the west to be remembered no more. We can't stop thinking about it. Our bitterness has poisoned us. The idea of being free. Paul would say in Second Corinthians 3 prior to this teaching, he'd say where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. You don't have that. You're in bondage to bitterness. Those images, that unforgiveness, the way it controls you, it triggers you. And God wants to set you free. As he has forgiven you while you were a sinner, he wants you to do the same. Forgiveness, pay attention. Forgiveness is not forgetting. God chooses not to remember. That's difficult for us. Forgiveness isn't forgetting what was done to you. Forgiveness is putting the consequences of what that person did to you into the hands of God so that you can go to sleep and move on with your life. You don't have to lay awake at night wanting revenge. They no longer control you You're no longer enslaved. Give it up. Spouses need to be reconciled. Forgive one another. Children need to be forgiven and children need to forgive. You don't get to pick the parents you get in this world but you can pick the kind of parent you're gonna be. Winston Churchill had an awful father, Randolph Churchill, he died of syphilis. He considered Churchill to be retarded. He would plead with him to come visit him in school. And Randolph Churchill would be across the street doing something with Parliament when he could easily have walked across the street and seen his son who wrote copious letters begging his mother and father to come see him, and he wouldn't. And in none of Churchill's writings do you ever see him speaking derogatorily about his father. He just said, my greatest regret is I never had the privilege to serve with my father in Parliament. That's a man who knew how to reconcile. The way you do it is your parents were probably awful. But find the things they were good at and write them down. And when those thoughts that trigger your anger rise, the Bible says hold every thought captive to the mind of Christ and then go to that list and begin to thank God for each of those things that your parents gave you, even if it means an example of what not to do. And a thankful heart is not an imprisoned heart. It's a free heart. You can't hate someone you're praying for. Pray for your enemies. Do good. If you've done wrong, today, go pick up the phone and reconcile. God did it for you. Go do it for them. One of the greatest struggles in reconciliation is marriage. And I want to build on this, and it's going to take me a moment, but it's real simple. Sarah and Abraham... They married in Ur of Chaldees, which was the equivalent of a gated community with running water and lush gardens, and God said to Abraham, leave your family and your kindred and go to a place I will show you, and he leaves Ur of Chaldees for Canaan, which is like moving from Santa Barbara to Palmdale, and I was just in Palmdale last night, great people. Seriously, no, I mean that, 7,500 people I spoke in front of, great people in Palmdale, It's affordable. They're the salt of the earth. They're precious folks. And so he, he moves to Canaan, and he brings Sarah, and, his, and Sarah leaves her whole family. But Abraham, in disobedience to God, brings his father and his nephew Lot. They get to Canaan after his dad dies en route. They get to Canaan, Lot's with him. And God doesn't tell him, but there's drought in the land, so he goes to Egypt without God saying so. Sarah's not whining and complaining. They get to Egypt, and as they're approaching Egypt... He realizes that the Egyptians are going to take her because that's his wife. And he knows their culture and he knows that they honor the, the, the sister more than they would honor a wife. So he says to Pharaoh, she's my sister. Now, it's true. She was his half-sister. But for Abraham, it was a half-truth, which is a whole lie. But for Sarah to say that I am... His, his sister, she's telling the truth. But if called on it, she would continue to tell the truth, but she honors her husband. And then Pharaoh sees after he's blessed Abraham with all kinds of monetary material blessings, he sees them not acting like brother and sister, but husband and wife. And he calls them on it and kicks them out of Egypt and they leave humiliated. And on the way back, all the camels are making their noises and the cows are mooing, and the cattle, you know, the sheep are bleeding, and they're just making noise, and they're surrounded by possessions, and she can look at him and say, you spineless coward. You wouldn't even declare me to be your wife. You, 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 you made me leave my family, and you brought yours. We ended up in a desert. We moved from Santa Barbara to Palmdale. <laughs> and you humiliated me in Egypt. I hope all these things are worth it. What a loser of a man you are. No, she never said that. As a matter of fact, interestingly enough, they end up bringing Hagar, which is an Egyptian handmaid, out of Egypt with them. And now Sarah's realizing she can't have children, and Abraham's been talking about his descendants being as numerous as the stars in the sky, and turns to Sarah, who can't have children, which is a major problem in this culture. If you had children, that it'd be okay. If they're girls or they're boys, you're, you're special. You don't have any kids, you are persona non grata. And in that that deep depression, she turns to her husband and she says, which is acceptable in this culture, sleep with Hagar and have a child through her. And Abraham's like, good call, woman. (laughs) Woo! Goes in and sleeps with her. The lining of tents is not real thick. Sarah heard the noise. Hagar, months after that, comes out rubbing her belly, pregnant with her husband's baby and looks at her and makes fun of her. And then there's tension and enmity. And Sarah turns to Abraham and says, this is your fault. This is your problem, you did this. He's like, you told me to sleep with her. Men, pay attention. (laughs) Women say one thing and they mean something totally different. Women, can I get an amen? Amen. When she said, sleep with Hagar, she said, remind me why you love me and why God's promises matter and that I am valuable to you. It's like your wife saying, are those your underwear on the floor? I like direct things. Pick up your underwear. When she says, are those yours? My next question is, they better be or you have explaining to do. (laughs) Women want you to lead. They're throwing that out for you. They're helping you. Wives, be patient with us. Thick skulls. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands that even without that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging of the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. She never browbeat him. And then it says, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to your wife as the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Understand what they're doing. They're, they're, They're helping you learn to lead. And if you berate them, your prayers are hindered. God's like, no, we're not moving forward till you, you treat my daughter a little better. Let's get that right. I gave you a helpmate. Listen to her. Knucklehead. Lovingly, he says that to me. Not you. But women, I want to share with you about the finest woman I know, my wife. I was a pastor that was completely broke. My provision for my family was a windowless apartment. I had no money, I had a car with 260,000 miles on it. The food in our kitchen was harvest second-hand food. We were so poor we couldn't pay attention. I worked ungodly hours. I had left a lucrative job and here I was, completely broke. I came home one night exhausted. I sit down in this windowless apartment, it was like living on a submarine. Filled with cockroaches, the neighbors above would do their dishes, the noodles would end up in our laundry. I'm not kidding. My wife, why did she not leave me? I sit down on the couch, I have given everything I have, she's next to me, I don't even want her touching me, I have nothing left to give. My daughter Kelly, who you've heard sing, she's gutsy, she comes out as a little girl, she says, Daddy, will you tuck us in? I said, not tonight, Daddy's tired, go to bed. She comes out a second time, gutsy kid. Daddy, would you please? I said, no. Now go to bed, I'm not gonna tell you again, I'm tired, I'm not tucking you in, go to sleep. If you have a sales job, you should hire her. (laughs) She came out a third time, daddy, will you? And I said, go to bed. My wife nudged me, I said, what? Now at that moment, my wife could have cut me down to size. Don't you yell at me, you pathetic excuse of a provider. We live in a windowless apartment with noodles in our laundry, with a car with 260,000 miles on it, cockroaches in every room. And this is the life you planned for us? You're never home. Who do you think you are? She didn't do that. I snapped at her. What? My wife learned a very powerful secret. God's way better at convicting me than she will ever be. She knows to wait on the Lord. She looks at me and she said, Rob, we just miss you. We haven't seen you all day. I said, I'm sorry. I got up and tucked my kids in. I remember when I was struggling with a drug addiction and I'd finally been convicted of the Lord and I wanted to be free. And I knew that I had to confess my sin and to walk in the light and to bring that fungus into the light where it would kill it and tell the truth. And I came to my wife and I said, I have to tell you something. I said, I've been hiding from you. And she said, I know. Third shelf in the closet, under the blue jeans. She was like Alice Crilly with that photographic memory. I said, how long have you known? She said, I think all along. I said, why didn't you say anything? She said, Rob, I didn't want you to be embittered to me and I knew God was better at bringing conviction than I'd ever be. I I, I don't want to belittle scripture, but Sarah's got a challenger on her hands. My wife brought me to my knees. She made me a better man because she put me in the hands of the Lord and she understood the power of prayer that God knows how to break you. I share that because there is a there's a tomb. This tomb has three couples buried in it. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah. The tomb is called the Cave of Machpelah. It means double one, belongs according to the rabbis. To the cave alone, there's reasons for the name being various. It was a double cave. It contained pairs of tombs. Alternately, Machpelah, Could be a reference to the reward of those buried there. Whoever is interred there has a double blessing. The cave of Machpelah and the field around it were Abraham's first acquisition in the land of God. He paid 400 pieces of silver. The three patriarchs are buried there that I listed. For 700 years, it was taken from the Jews from 1267 to 1967. They weren't allowed access to it, but in 1967, after the Six-Day War, it was miraculously liberated, and the Jews were able once again to go into this holy site. But in 1993, in the Oslo Accords, they they gave the Palestinian authority over many of the areas in Judea and Samaria, and they took this holy site, and Jews can only go there 10 days a year. Why is this place special, and what does it mean to us? We're talking about reconciliation and a cave of blessing. Not just blessing, but double blessing. Husband and wife, life. This is the story of Abraham. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age. An old man full of years and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, the field in which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried, and Sarah, his wife. You read verse 9 when you're drinking your cup of coffee in the morning, and you skip over it, and you do not know the significance. Isaac and Ishmael buried Abraham in that cave. There weren't two people on the face of the earth who hated each other more than Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was born first, and Isaac took the blessing. In that passage, God leaves everything to Isaac. You want to talk about an embittered son. Sarah and Abraham caused Hagar to be left in the wilderness. That boy was left nothing. Isaac got it all. Talk about a broken family relationship. And everyone in the room can think of something. But in verse 9 it says, Isaac and Ishmael buried their father. I have done hundreds of funerals and I have watched families refusing to come because other family members are there. The bitterness goes even unto death. But in this case, the reason why Isaac and Ishmael were reconciled is because someone died. And typically in a funeral, when you have warring factions who are to enmity, and someone dies, you watch reconciliation begin. And Isaac and Ishmael were reconciled to bury their father. And the idea is, if you're going to be reconciled to your enemy, someone has to die. And Christ died for you and reconciled you to the father. Now it's time for you to die so that others can be reconciled to you. Forgive, let it go. Genesis, in that same cave... They charged him and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Makla, which is before Mamre in the the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought as a field of Ephron the Hittite, possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, Jacob speaking, in the field in the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. There I buried Leah. There I buried Leah. There I buried Leah. Jacob loved Rachel. At very first sight, he was stunned by her beauty. Rachel was a hottie. He worked seven years for Laban. And on the wedding night, when they were to consummate in the, in the Hebrew culture, it was much like a burqa. She went in in this wedding outfit. And they consummated, and then the veil would be removed. And Laban pulled a trick on Jacob. He took Rachel's sister Leah and switched them. Leah was the oldest. Rachel was beautiful. Leah, and for those of you named Leah, bear with me. You're stunning. You're beautiful. But Leah means cow's eyes. Better translation. One who makes your eyes hurt. She fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down. That's not me. That's the scripture. He removed that veil on consummation night and went, oh. And Laban's back there going, we got to marry the oldest first. You can have them both. He worked another seven years for Rachel. Leah kept having sons. Every time she'd have a son, she'd say, maybe now my husband will love me, maybe now my husband will love me, maybe now my husband will love me. And Rachel, competing with her older sister and her beauty and her bitterness, she was dying in childbirth with her little boy and on her deathbed, she turns to Jacob and she says, name this child Benoni, son of my sorrow. He's responsible for my misery. You blame him every day of his life and let him live with this. Jacob looks at that bitter woman, he says, no, I'm gonna name him Benjamin, my little right-hand man. And he saw there that the beauty of Rachel was external. And he witnessed a woman who her entire life just longed for her husband to love her, and she said, maybe now my husband will love me, maybe now my husband will love me. And the last son she gave birth to, she finally reconciled to God and said, God, I can't do what only you can do, I surrender. And she said these words. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah, which means praise God. And she stopped bearing. Jacob was so moved by Leah that at the end of his life, just like my own, when I am dead and gone and gathered to my people, wherever God seeks that I be buried, I want to be buried next to the love of my life, Michelle. And when Jacob said, bury me in the cave of Machpelah, there I buried Leah. Leah reconciled to God, and God blessed her and gave her freedom. And when Judah was born of the 12 tribes of Israel, his is the lineage of Jesus Christ, whose name echoes in the halls of heaven, last book of the Bible, But one of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. Jesus' name is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Bitterness or reconciliation? Forgiveness or a prison of misery? Christ has come to set you free. He reconciled you to himself by his death. Let it go. Whatever it is, they don't get to live in your head rent free anymore. God wants you free. And today we're gonna do that at the altar. The Bible says if you realize you have an issue with your brother and you come to offer a sacrifice, leave it and go be reconciled to your brother. And today you get to come, I'm gonna have the prayer team come up. And look, it's just time to do work with the Lord. Just leave it here. We have a nation to save. And we cannot set them free and bring liberty until we ourselves experience it first. And there's no room for bitterness in the body of Christ. Today's a day to be forgiven and to forgive. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up and I'll close in prayer and the prayer team come on up. And if you would, while the worship team's coming up, would you all, um, well, let me pray first, let's do that. Lord, I know we're running a little over, but I did tell them I'd give them a long sermon. But your grace is sufficient and this is the most important part of our time together where you Holy Spirit want to set the captives free. While we're at enmity, while we're at war with you, you died for us. There's a lot of folks in here that need to forgive those who've hurt them. And we know that forgiveness is not forgetting but putting the consequences of that person's actions into your hands so that they can go back to living. And revenge and bitterness is no longer that which marks their life. They are free. And the shackles of unforgiveness have been unlocked and they can live. Live to your glory. They're new creatures in Christ. They've been set free. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And Lord, you're here now. Spirit of living God, would you minister to every heart through the power of your word to set them free today. Lord, no man can do this work, only you. We need you, God. We need reconciliation in the body and in the nation. But let it begin with us now. We invite you to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for me? And what we're gonna do is a prayer team's up here. And if you're standing, it's easier for folks to access. I, I can't think of any reason why you wouldn't come other than pride, and that is an awful thing. And we got plenty of time. I'll just tell third service, you need to be reconciled to the fact that we're late. Right? <laughs> come on, folks, let's do this. This nation needs a reconciled people set free to serve and to love in Jesus' name. As they worship, come on up. These folks will pray with you and they'll keep it in confidence. God bless you all.